0: Well, good morning, everybody. Um, Happy Father's Day again to everyone. Uh, We are so thankful that you are here with us this morning. Um, And I know I just want to start off uh, this morning in the sermon, just taking a a couple moments to acknowledge that um, when it comes to Father's Day, that for some people, that is a day of celebration, a day of of rejoicing and family legacy and excitement about what God is doing and has done. For others, it is a time of uh, of heartache, um, of wounds. Of uh, maybe feeling some brokenness, maybe uh, longing for a closer relationship with your kids. I mean, there's so many different gamut of emotions that come on Mother's Day and Father's Day as well. And, and, and I want to just take a moment that if you hear nothing else from this morning's sermon, uh, just that you would hear something that I don't want to come across as a platitude because a platitude is, a, is a, something that, you know, We say it, and hopefully it makes it feel better, but this isn't a platitude. It's a deep-seated truth that we hear so often. It can feel like it's relegated to being a platitude, but the thing is that it's a a truth that we all need to hold onto, is the truth that it is a beautiful thing that even though we may have different types of relationships with our dads or with our grandfathers or with our kids or whatever that looks like, that it's not just a platitude. It is a deep, scriptural biblical truth that it is great the love the father has lavished on us that we might be called children of God that our identity is not in our earthly father or earthly ancestry our identity isn't in our progeny our identity is in Jesus Christ who while we were still sinners died for us and if you hear nothing else this morning may you be overwhelmed with the richness the the width the breadth the depth of the love that God has for you because you are not here by accident. You are fearfully and wonderfully made that God does not make mistakes. And when he breathed life into you, he breathed life into a child that he loved so much that he sent Jesus to die for on the cross. And so my hope and my prayer is that no matter what kind of relationship you have with your dad or your kids or what that looks like, that you would take hold of the knowledge, both here, because you hear it all the time, but that it would take the distance that's one of the furthest distances we'll ever walk in our lives or we'll ever experience is the 12 inches between our head and our heart, what we know until we truly know it. So may you truly know the love the Father has for you this morning as we think about Father's Day. We are going to be starting a series through the book of James called A Faith That Works. Um, And before we do, let's just dive straight into the word of God together. Let's pray together, and then we'll dive into the first 18 verses of James chapter 1 together. Father, we thank you so much that we can call you as our father, that you are our Abba, you are our daddy, that you are our father who loves your children. And God, as we go into this topic, recognizing that there are some of your children in this room or listening online later that are not feeling close to you right now that may be wandered away, that are experiencing trials or temptations and struggles. God, I pray that you would draw them close to you this morning, that they would hear your still small voice speaking love and identity into their ears. May their eyes, ears, and hearts be open to what you have in store for them. And as we dive into your, your word, may I decrease, may you increase, may you speak in a personal, powerful, impactful way to every person that's here and everyone that's listening online later. We love you, Lord, in your son's holy and precious name we pray. Amen. As we're starting in James chapter 1, we'll, we'll take a few moments in a little bit to look at some of the background of it, but I want to start off by sharing when I was at UC San Diego uh, in my sophomore year, I lived in the uh, northwestern corner of the campus, and and I had um, my midterm and my final for a certain class was was kind of more centralized in the campus. It's a pretty big campus. It's not one that you can just walk out and, and get to right away, and I remember my, my uh, midterm was for 9 a.m., and I remember waking up that morning, looking at the clock, seeing 9.20. And I remember just being like, oh man, like what do you know? And it was this weird moment because you would think the natural thing that most of us would think was, oh my gosh, I better hurry. I better go. I better rush. And I kind of just got up and like put on deodorant because you know, Um, but then just got on deodorant, brushed my teeth. And my roommate was like, aren't you in a hurry? I was like. Yeah. Um, And I ended up like walking there. Thankfully, I caught a shuttle, got, um, was able to get dropped off right before. And I ended up taking the test. It was a, thankfully, it was a subject that um, I'd taken like in high school and then in college and then in college. So I was pretty familiar with the material. I was able to finish the test and and passed it. I mean, I don't think I got an A, but I, I passed the test. And it was one of those where I just remember that moment of, that fear, that moment when you're like, I'm missing a test. Like I'm missing something. And yet for whatever reason, I didn't respond the way that I thought it would when the test was actually happening. Now, There's things like that. When you know a test is coming and yet sometimes you miss it, you lose sight of it, or you don't think you're going to respond the way that you predict you would when the test comes. Then there's other times when a test, you don't even know what's happening. And it's just like this idea of of having a pop quiz in which you don't know when it's coming. You just have to be ready whenever it is. And for many of us, you know, pop quizzes were, were two of the least favorite words when it comes to school. But we end up having this moment in which, whether it's a test that we know is coming, maybe we're missing, maybe we're not responding the way we thought we would, or maybe it's just a test that we know is coming up, or whether we're in a place where there's a pop quiz that we don't know, that either one of those shows us a testing of what our knowledge is and, and how aware we are of the material, whatever that may be. And in life, there are times that we know we are entering into a season of testing, that it might be something where it's the first uh, you know year at college and you're just not quite sure what it's going to look like to figure out what being an adult away from home looks like. Maybe it's the idea of when you start to figure out your job, your career, and then God calls you or God stirs in something different in you. And so that thing you thought you'd be doing, you have to put away that picture in your mind and take hold of the picture that God has for you. Maybe it's this idea of a beginning of a marriage in which two are becoming one, but then you realize this person's way different than you thought they were because you only got to see, you know, the parts that were really easy. I mean, whatever it is, maybe it's when you're, when there's pregnancy and it's just, it's, there's a lot of pain and discomfort. Maybe it's you have kids for the first time and you just know you're not going to sleep for a while. Or maybe it's toddlers when they scream and cry. Maybe it's teenagers when they fight back. Maybe it's any of these different myriad things. Maybe it's when you get news about an illness. Maybe it's when your parents are going through an illness and you know that now the ones who cared for you are now the ones you will start caring for. I mean, there are so many different seasons that when we start to see them coming, we can kind of be a little aware of it, yet... There are also times when we are tested that we have no clue, that it just comes as a pop quiz, and in those moments, we see and we experience whether the genuineness of our faith, what we say we believe, is that really what we believe, or are those things that we say when things are comfortable, and then when discomfort comes, we flee. So we're going to look this morning at James chapter 1, which this is the series or the sermon title is just called The Testing of Faith, and it's these first 18 verses of James chapter 1, and our main point for this morning is that how we respond to external trials and internal temptations is the greatest test of our faith. How we respond to external trials and internal temptations is the greatest test of our faith. Now, if you want to turn to James chapter 1, we're going to be on page 1,879 inside the church Bible, which is in the seat in front of you. Um, But if you have your own Bible, that's great, too. We're going to James chapter 1. And as we start off in James 1, we we are introduced to James himself. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. We'll stop there because James is uh, the brother of Jesus. And so uh, we see that in the Gospels that James uh, and the other brothers did not believe in Jesus, who he was. And then there's a whole dialogue that, um, that Jesus has with, like, your brothers are here. And Jesus says, well, who are my mother and my brothers? It's he who does the will of the Father, right? Or those who do the will of the Father. This idea that they didn't believe him when he was here. But then after he resurrected, we see evidence that he sh- revealed himself, that he was, when he was resurrected, he Uh, James is one of the ones that saw him, is what I should say, that he saw him, he experienced the resurrected Christ. And like any of us, when we truly experience the resurrected Christ, everything changes. And so James then becomes a pillar, a leader in the early church that we see in Acts chapter 15, when there was Uh, enmity and division amongst some of the disciples and apostles that James was the one who came in and brought a healthy conflict resolution. And we looked at that back in August of last year and September of last year through our Acts series. So James is a pillar and he writes this to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. This idea that some scholars will say that that means People who had a Jewish background who had been dispersed, that word scattered is where we get the word diaspora um, for the Jewish nation or for the dispersion dispersion um, of the people. And so it's this idea of two Jewish people who have been dispersed, who've been part of the diaspora across the nations uh, of the world at that time. Other people, another uh, commentator I said kind of talked about, well, maybe it's more this idea of how um, the church became the new uh, chosen people. So it's more of a metaphorical, you know, Jesus are speaking to the Jews that are the new 12 tribes based off of that. So you could look either way. I'm going to go with it. The idea for for the case of our discussion, the idea that it's for Christians who believe in Jesus um, and maybe had a Jewish background in the midst of that, because that'll speak into some of the things that we look at over the course of this series. With that said, uh, this passage or this book is often referred to as uh, one of the, it's just a great book for people to study. It's, it's one that um, can be called or has been referenced as like the Proverbs for the New Testament in which there's wisdom sayings about how to live a mature godly life that talk about very tangible topics and how as Christians are we brought to maturity in order to live the way that God has called us to live because of what Jesus has done in our lives. Because like we said, when we truly experience the resurrected Christ, everything changes. And so as we look at that idea, what I want to do is look at two things from our main point. It says how we respond to external trials and internal temptations is the greatest test of our faith. So we're going to take the first few moments to look at the external trials over here and have some points for us. So the first point that we have here is that when we have faith in the purpose of our trials, we can have joy during them. Not that we always understand the trials, not that we always like what we're going through because obviously that's not the case. But when we have faith that there's a purpose, we don't even know the purpose yet. We may find it out sometime. We may not know it until it's long in our rear view, but we've been able to help someone who's in that certain similar lifestyle or life place now. We don't know what that looks like. But if we can have faith that there is a purpose for the trials we are facing, then we can consider it. We can count it per joy. Verse two. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance, and let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. That this idea, this word consider it, pure joy, or in some of your Bible versions might be count it, per pure joy. That, that's not just like, a, oh, let's think about it for a while. Like, oh, let's consider it. Let's really think about it. It's, it's more of a, of a financial term, like a counting the cost, an actual considering of whether this is something we can afford, or in this case, what is it that we're truly looking deeper? Not just to really think about it, but actually digging in deeper to say, how is it that God might be bringing about joy in my life in the midst of a trial in a difficult situation. That in verse 3, when it talks about the testing of our faith, that the testing of faith produces perseverance, that, that word testing is this idea of a positive test in which the genuineness or the quality is being revealed. So this kind of test is something that we've seen throughout scripture. We see Abraham being tested, and he passed. We see Saul being tested, and in order to wait for Samuel, in order to make the sacrifice, and he failed. And we see that Jesus was tested. I mean, this is something that is, you cannot read a passage of scripture or a story of someone who lived a life following God in which they have not experienced some degree of a test or another. So when we have tests, it doesn't mean that God doesn't love us. It doesn't mean he's abandoning us. It doesn't mean that he stops caring it just means that there is a test in which a genuineness or the quality of our faith needs to be brought to light, either to be applauded or to be worked on and to have God go deeper when he works in us and through us. This idea of a testing is something we see in 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. Peter says, In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire— that that may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. And so we see that idea that experiencing trials, we acknowledge it is a test, but we can have a perspective in which that test draws us closer, makes us sharper, takes us deeper, and causes us to have joy in the midst of it. That Think about the opposite of this for a second. If you thought about the opposite of what James two, uh, 1, 2 through 4 says is to think about a child. So that, that not like any specific child uh, because, you know, just a general child that you think about. And we talk about, okay, let's have, wouldn't it be great if this child had just no problems in, the, in his or her life? Just there were no struggles. They had everything they wanted. They had um, no cares, no concerns. They didn't have to work for anything. They didn't have anything that was difficult at all. We would think, theoretically, that that would be a good life, that, that would be a great childhood, to be able to have everything they always wanted when they wanted, how we wanted it. And yet, if we know any kids that are like that, don't look at anybody, don't think of any. But if we know kids like that, that is not pure joy to be around, right? Because the thing is, is that when you have no difficulty, when there's no trial, no pain, no difficulty, then there's no need for them to become Resilient. There's no need for them to endure. In the case of our passage here, there's no need for perseverance because perseverance presupposes difficulty. And so, if there's no difficulty in a child's life, then they don't have to work and say, Oh my gosh, this is hard, and they would just give up. They say, Oh, it's too hard. I can't do it. Or if there's no difficulty or pain, then there's nothing for them to withstand. And withstanding creates a depth and strength of character, it creates a depth and strength of faith. And in this case, it talks about how that faith becomes complete and matured. So if we have a kid who has no issues in their life, nothing happens, everything's good, whenever there's something difficult, the parents hover over and they they, they separate heartache from from what they're experiencing, we may think as parents we are helping, but in the end, we are creating little ones that cannot have resilience, cannot persevere, cannot endure, and in so doing, when trials do come because they inevitably will, they will either face those trials as a little one in which we can help and coach and come alongside, or they will face those trials when they're older and they will give up, because they have no one to come alongside them. And in so doing, they lack maturity. They don't grow up to experience the life that God has for them. And they're lacking so many things. That's the opposite of two through four. So then what two through four says is that we know that testing of faith produces that perseverance, that resilience, that endurance, that being able to forbear things that are difficult. And then that perseverance will finish its work so that you may be mature, complete, not lacking anything because we verbally, we might think we want our kid to be like this, but we know the long view that we don't. So why would God as our good father want us to be like that? Where there's no trials, no issues, no anything. And in so doing we become immature, lack resilience, lack perseverance and never grow into completeness of maturity of how he's made it to be. So let's look at that there. There's that idea of looking at our trials. That when we have faith in the purpose of our trials, we can have joy during them. The next point underneath that is that we must move from being, or sorry, from trying to figure it out to choosing to pray more about. That I've been getting this all the time where I'm thinking about something for church or Steph and I are talking about something for the family. And I'm like, I just got to figure out how to do this. I just got to figure out how to make that happen. I got to just figure out what that looks like as if my intellectual analysis is enough to discern the will of God. But instead of just trying to intellectually analyze everything and try to figure it out, what would it look like to pray more about it? That whether it's a college decision, whether it's high school, whether it's a career, whether it's what it's going to look like for this next season in our lives, whether it's whatever it may be, instead of trying to figure it out and analyze it, what if we took God at his word, as we will see, and we asked him for wisdom that we know we need? That we see here in verse 5. Verses five through eight. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Hear that. God wants to generously give to you. Notice that he's not talking about finances. He's not talking about wealth. But what is it that Saul, sorry, Solomon was commended for when he asked for it from God? It was A discerning heart. It was wisdom. It was this idea of God wants to generously give these things to his kids who ask. In the same way that when my girls ask me for something that I know is good for them, I want to give it to them. I don't want to shield them from everything. Well, I may want to, but I should know better. But it's this idea of wanting to give generously. He will give without finding fault. He will give us wisdom when we ask for it. That we can either experience this deep calm that comes in a relationship of believing in him, and so, that when trials come, yes, the wind and the waves might be rocking and we might be having a hard time, but it's like a buoy that is anchored to the, the ocean floor that is still steady, even when things around it are rocky. Or we could see what it looks like in verse six when it says, But you ask, when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. And if you've ever been tossed by, When I was younger, I went boogie boarding and I just crashed right into the ground and I couldn't, there was a moment where I couldn't like, the the boogie board was over my head and I couldn't get up for a second and I just felt tossed and I was just all discombobulated and and it was just really tough, right? And we know what it's like to be tossed by the winds and the waves of this world. But instead of being tossed by the winds of this wave of this world, we could look at what Peter did in Matthew 14 when he fixes his eyes on Jesus and says, Lord, if that's you, tell me I'll come walk on water, And when he fixes his eyes, when we fix our eyes upon the author and perfecter of our faith, we can walk on water. But when Peter, what did he do? He started looking to the winds and the waves and he immediately started to sink. And so what we can do is we can either be tossed by the waves that will inevitably come or we can find a deep calm and have our hope anchored in who Jesus is so that we can withstand what comes next. That we hear a very... uh, what's the word? Common prayer that is the uh, serenity prayer, this idea that God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. If we ask God for wisdom, he loves giving that gift to his people, to his kids, to those whom he loves. And so we continue on and we see that if someone Verse seven, should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, who, someone who's doubting because, and then such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Imagine if your life was just surrounded by waves of new thought, waves of what the world's telling you, waves of the influence of those around us, waves on the world that changes so much yet God's word does not change and we have a firm foundation upon Jesus that we could build our lives which will not change so we could either choose to be unstable by believing in these external things or we could choose to have our lives built upon the rock, upon the firm foundation, and upon who Jesus is. Verses 9 through 11, we continue on. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers its plant, the plant, its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. So a couple things. One, we're just talking about trials, joy, wisdom. And then James just interposes this part about poverty and and, and wealth. And so what we look from that is, is we see that This idea of poverty and wealth, that this was sent to different churches, not to one individual church like Paul's church, uh, Paul's letter to the Romans. This was sent to multiple churches in multiple different circumstances in which some places, maybe the believers had more money, others they didn't. But the idea is that he seems to make a connection that how we are with our money, our poverty, wealth, whatever that may be, has a strong connection to trials we may face. That as Proverbs 30 talks about, we might be people when we don't have enough money that we would steal and dishonor our Lord's name. Or as Proverbs 30 talks about just after that, we might be people that we might get so much that we then think it's all about us and we forget our God. That there's a trial that comes with poverty and a trial that comes with wealth. And and notice this is one of those examples in which he brings up poverty and wealth and the poor and the rich. He mentions the poor once and then he spends more time on the rich, because that's the one that he's looking at a little bit deeper. And it's, it's very similar in which Ephesians 5, we're not going to go into all of it, but it talks about how wives are to be, and that's like one verse, and then it talks about how husbands are to be, and it's like five verses, right? Because it's like there's a lot for both sides to learn, but it's one where the, the, the husbands have a high calling um, as well in order to love and to lead and to serve their wives, and so we talk about both, but sometimes we see that James is really focusing here on the rich. And so we're not going to spend too much more time on it because this is not the only time James will approach the sins of the wealthy and what it looks like to be rich and poor and how that changes our dynamic of how we live. So we're going to look at that more in upcoming weeks because that will definitely be hit on uh, as we continue our series. So. From there, I'm just taking a few moments to recap that we're looking at external trials, those things on the outside of us we cannot control. So then the flip side is how do we respond to the internal temptations? How do we respond to those things that are from within that can still cause heartache and wounds and difficulty and struggle in our lives? We want to start here with this idea that when uh, when we give into temptation, we give birth to sin. When we give in to temptation, we give birth to sin. Verse 13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. And so here... There are a couple things that we want to look at. The first one is this idea that I remember when I was at UC San Diego, another time I was was fasting from uh, dinners for about a month and really seeking the Lord in something. And that was the time. Like, it was the time when I was fasting, I wasn't eating after 5 p.m. for prayer, that like friends would just bring brownies over. They never brought food over, right? Like this is the time when I'm like, free food happens now when as a college student, free food never happened. And it's like, you could have a moment where you're like, oh, I'm fasting. And then you walk by like a a Cinnabon airport, like in the Cinnabon, and just like that smell is the smell of pure temptation. But this idea of all of a sudden, I could be like, oh, you know what? I told God I was going to do this. God must be tempting me with this food. And I'm like, God did not tempt me. I was plenty tempted on my own. I didn't need his help in that, right? So it's one of those where we see that we don't say that God is tempting us. But notice what happens. This is temptation is not something that is an external trial in that section. That the temptation is something that is internal. That we see this because it says that we have been dragged away, enticed. That it's this fishing analogy that, in some of your versions, it talks about someone who is being lured away. So, picture a fisher, a fisherman, putting a lure into the water, and it's it's something that is. The, the fish sees it and wants it. It's an internal decision. It's an internal desire. The enemy may be trying to lure us, but we are the ones, if we give into that temptation, that bite, and then when we bite, we are in, dragged away. To use this verbiage, it's a fishing term, or this idea if you're lured or you're enticed, and then you are dragged away. And that the enemy is the fisherman trying to lure us away, to drag us, to cause us to fall into sin. But that's something that we are the ones that we decide to either take a bite to take a hike and to leave, that we see that Jesus was tempted too, that being tempted is not in in itself a sin, because Jesus was tempted, as we see in Matthew 4, but he didn't sin. He responded by not sinning, that when we are tempted, if we give into that temptation, we allow that desire inside of us to take a bite, and then all of a sudden we are lured away. That is an internal thing Not an external trial, it's an internal temptation. And then right after that, we see that he starts talking about using an analogy of birth. He starts talking about how desire, that desire is what is conceived. And when the desire is conceived, then sin is born. And then once we gives birth to sin, when sin grows up, it then leads to death. That the wages of sin is death. The end result of pursuing sin is death. And so we see in this part here that... When we give in a temptation, we give birth to sin. And that word tempted is, a, is the verb form. This is the uh, verse 13 is the word form of the noun translated trial in verse 12. So trials and temptations can be, are from the same word, but one is from the outside and one is from our own choice on the inside. And we tend to know the difference. So then we see the first point under internal temptations is that when we give in a temptation, we give birth to sin. And the second point is though, is that when we trust in our father's truth, we are born again. When we trust in our father's truth, we are born again. Verse 16 through 18. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all that he created that he wants, James wants it to be so clear that again, when you are experiencing temptations, we do not say that God is tempting me. We do not say that's what God is doing to us. We recognize that we are taking hold of that temptation and we are choosing to bite and be lured and dragged away. And so he's saying, do not be deceived. God is not the one who is tempting you. God is the one who's the giver of good gifts, that he is the father of the heavenly lights. And then notice right after that, he talks about how, The Father does not change like shifting shadows because it's the heavenly lights that causes the shadows to come. So he is unchanging. He is immovable. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is not something that's going to change by the wave of what the world is saying. In fact, he is the eminence of light, and the world may have shifting shadows around it, but the, the catalyst of that light is our heavenly Father. He does not change. The way that people see him might change, but he does not change. And so because of that, we recognize that he, the father of heavenly lights, has chosen to give us birth the word of truth. That he continues this word analogy from verse 15 about how desire of sin leads to being birth of sin and then the... The conclusion is birth of death. And then he says, you're not born to sin any longer. When we've confessed our sins and God is righteous and just to forgive us of our sins, when we've given our lives to Jesus, then now we are no longer born to sin, but we are born again. And we trust in our Father's truth because we're now birthed from that truth, the truth that you are not Your identity is not found in what you do. It's found in what Jesus has done. The truth that God loves you so deeply and so richly and it's the width and the the depth and the breadth of his love is far beyond anything we can understand. But yet we get a glimpse of it. And maybe he'll give us a glimpse of it day by day by day and that if you hear nothing else you leave out this morning and say, you know what? I don't even know or care what he talked about but I do remember hearing him say that God loved me. If that's What happens in your life this morning, this is a good day. This is a life-changing day. This is a day that when we experience the risen Christ, everything changes. So lastly, we've talked, we spent some time here in this idea of the external trials, how we seek for joy. Or so we, we consider it joy, we, we seek out wisdom, we ask God for that. And then on this side, we spent verses 13 through 18 looking at the internal temptations that when we within our own internal desires are dragged away, enticed, and we are, we are prey to, our, to the um, fishermen and in regards to reminding ourselves that our battle, as Ephesians 6 talks about, is not against flesh and blood. It's against the rulers and the authorities and the powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That we stand firm, not because of our own strength, but because we have the power of the Holy Spirit in us. That every day we put on the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and the feet fitted with the readiness of the gospel, the peace and the helmet of salvation and the shield of faith with which to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. And then the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. That we are able to stand firm because we have armor of God on, not because we try to fight our battles alone, that we might feel like we are surrounded by external trials and internal temptations. We might feel like we are surrounded, but we recognize that we are surrounded by God. And that is how we fight our battles. So we see the hope in the middle between the external trials, internal temptations. There's hope in the middle for all of us. And it comes not quite in the middle. It comes about two thirds into our passage for this morning. And it's verse 12. It says, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. And our point underneath the hope in the middle is this idea of saying, when we withstand the test, we become stronger, more mature, and blessed. When we withstand the test, we become stronger, more mature, and blessed. Not that the trial is easy, not that the test is expected, not that it goes the way we plan, not the way that we respond to it the way we think we will. Like when I'm late for a test and I just kind of mosey on down, we may not respond initially, but if we withstand the test, if we go through it, if we consider it joy, we ask for wisdom, we reject temptation, we lean into God's truth. If we are able to do that, what is birthed is not death that we see in verse 18. What is birthed is that our relationship with him through truth, that we might be a first fruits of all that he's created. And that happens when we are blessed by withstanding the test. That verse 12 talks about this idea that blessed is the same language that we see in the Beatitudes. So blessed is one who perseveres under trial. And then we see that this crown of life that they experience is not a, it's not a gold crown filled with diadems and jewels. That instead it's a, it's a wreath of laurels, of the laurel wreath. Um, uh, when there is a crown of winning a race in athletic games that you would receive a crown that had these laurel wreaths around it or these laurel leaves I'm sorry and it's a wreath of that and that was your crown for running the race withstanding the test and so we look at second Timothy 4 when when God or sorry when Paul talks about how I have kept the faith I've run the race I fought the good fight I've run the race I've kept the faith and now I go receive the crown of righteousness that the Lord has prepared for all those who long for his appearing Like this idea that is a run, we run the race, we withstand the test, we make it through the external trials, we make it through the internal temptations. In the midst of all that, we withstand the test and we're able to experience blessedness, not financial blessedness. When we say sometimes, oh, we're blessed, sometimes people, it just sounds like it's financial blessings. That is not what God promises us. Because we see that finances can can ebb and flow, and we'll talk about that later, but The blessedness we receive is the blessedness that comes from right relationship with God, which cannot be taken away. That when bad things happen to us, we can still have joy. Because joy is not something that's based on our circumstances. It's based on who God is and our identity in him. That happiness is based off of events and happenings that happen. So when things happen that are bad, we can be upset, we can be down. We look at happiness, oh, the pursuit of happiness in the sense of, I just wanna be happy all the time and have everything perfect. And if we have that kind of life, we become those kind of children that just have everything they want and then miss all the things they need. But instead we have joy that perseveres, joy that survives the test, joy that causes us to have faith. When faith makes no sense, but we realize we cannot have true faith, We cannot please God without the true kind of faith, the faith that is sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. But we still believe it. We still lean into it. And we still trust our Heavenly Father in the midst of it. And so... As we close, that there are um, there's a story uh, that many of you may have heard if you've gone to church before, or an example from Malachi verse three or chapter three verse three, and it's it's a section in which um, there is a a woman who goes to a Bible study, and I think we have a, a picture of Malachi three three. Um, this idea of when it talks about how God will sit as a refiner's fire. And so the story goes that a woman uh, went to a Bible study and, and she heard this. And so she called up a silversmith and decided uh, that she wanted to see for herself what this looked like. And, and she said, didn't explain why, but she just said, I want to, I'm interested in how silver is refined. So she goes there and part of the process is that the silver is, is right in the hottest part of the fire, that the hottest part of fire, the heat of that test is what causes the impurities of the silver to rise to the top. And then be able to be refined. And then in so doing, the, 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 the um, silversmith, the refiner, has to keep its eye on it the whole time. Because if, if it's too long, it could become to the point where it's no longer usable, it, would be, it wouldn't be would be able to function. So he keeps his eye on the silver in the midst of it. And then she ends and, and she, you know, she kind of gets this idea of, oh wow, so it reminds us that God is with us in the fire. He is with us in the test and the trials, the difficulties, and he keeps his eye upon us, knowing that he will be able to bring impurities to the surface, and then he will refine us and make us new. And then she asks, and that in and of itself was powerful to her, and then she asks the silversmith, the refiner, how do you know when the silver is ready to be used. And he says, well, that's easy. It's when I I could see my own reflection in it. So this woman, another person that, we hear these stories and you want to be like, that's a powerful story. And this woman that was online was like, I wanted to actually, you know, I wanted to see like how how true it is and if that's something that is is accurate. So she called um, a silversmith and, and his name was Fred Zweig. And he says this, he says, when she asked, is this, Is this story real? Is that that how silver works? He says, I am familiar with the verse from Malachi. The similarities of actual refining and the chapter and verse from the Bible are accurate. It is important not to overheat the silver when refined in this process and to clean the molten silver will shine with a mirror-like quality when it is ready to pour The high temperatures do volatilize the impurities and form on the surface as dross, and it is important to be attentive to the molten metal as it does it no good to overheat it. It may not destroy the silver, but silver has an affinity for absorbing oxygen, and this can make it unworkable. So it's just a double, a way to double check and to see like, what is the truth of this? That the truth is that whether you are in a test and it's one that you kind of saw coming because it's a stage of life and, and it's something that, you know, kind of saw on the horizon and maybe you're responding the way you want, or maybe like me, when I was late for my midterm, I didn't respond the way I thought I would, but whatever, whatever. Or maybe it's something where as a pop quiz. is out of nowhere that you got that call from a doctor you didn't expect. You, you lost a loved one that you didn't th- foresee any of that coming. That there's a wound and a brokenness that came out of nowhere. Wherever you are in the midst of that, I hope and I pray that, that you could take hold of this idea. That as Proverbs 17.3 says, that the crucible for silver, the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the heart. That he will take hold of you in the midst of the heat of the trial, in the hottest part of the fire, in the part in which you. You have to believe that you are alone, that no one sees you, that you feel isolated and divided. In the moment in which you feel like God cannot possibly love me because if He possibly loved me, then none of these things would possibly be happening to me. In that moment in which everything is tougher than you ever thought it would be, and you thought that following Jesus was going to be something that was easy and good, and the end of it, it ended up being something that was tough and hard, but still for our good. But you end up getting this moment where, in that section, in that moment, you have to remember, that you're in the heat of the trial. Your refiner has his eye on you. He's not leaving you. He's waiting for the imperfections to leave so that his perfection could be put into us. And then he will stop the moment of trial. He will stop the the refining process when we have created that mirror-like quality in which he could look at us and he could see his reflection, his image, which we have been created to embody for our whole lives. So whatever season you are in, whatever trial or temptation you are facing, remember that you might feel like you are fighting this battle alone. You're not. Isolation and loneliness are the enemy's tools. That and the idea of of shame, the idea that we can still do things wrong. We make mistakes. We sin. We fall short of the glory of God. And in so doing, we might be guilty. Guilty says, I did something wrong. I, I did wrong. Shame becomes an identity thing that says, I am wrong. That our identity is not in shame anymore because Jesus came to take away our shame. That we are still s- sinful. We still fall short. We confess he's righteous and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But in so doing, our identity is not in shame. Our identity is not being like the being, st- having a, our life stolen and killed and destroyed. Our identity is not saying, oh, You know, God must not love me because I'm having a really difficult time. All of us will face tests. All of us may respond the way that we want. We hope we do, but we won't know until it happens. And so if you're in a test, it does not mean God has abandoned you. It means he's closer and has his eye on you more than you could ever even fathom or imagine. And he's waiting to see his image in you. So pray that he would just continue to work in you, shape you, mold you, refine you, so that we could continue to be the men and women he's called us to become, so that more people would come to know who Jesus is, because yes, we went through a horrible testing, but through that testing, we now have a testimony in order to share who Jesus is, and we can recognize that we are not alone. He is with us. We do not fight our battles by ourselves. We may feel surrounded, but we are surrounded by him. Father, we thank you so much for who you are, Lord. And I pray, God, that as we talk through James, as some of us, Lord, maybe we didn't even get past verse 2 because the trial we are facing right now is something in which we can't even imagine taking it as joy. And so, Lord, we are just stuck on that. Lord, I pray that your joy would infuse our hearts and that you would break down walls that we've been building for days or weeks or months or years or decades, Lord that we've put up walls because we feel like we are surrounded by trials or temptations, Lord, but may we break down those walls so that, and see that we are surrounded by you, that you are with us. You never leave us nor forsake us. You are our God and we are your people. And if there are people in this room or listening online later who don't have that right relationship with you yet, may you beckon upon their hearts to speak so clearly to them so they've realized that you love them Even though they've rejected you, you love them and you call them home. May we all experience joy. May we ask for your wisdom. May we lean into your truth. And may we remember that though we might feel surrounded, we're surrounded by you. This is how we fight our battle, by recognizing who you are. You are with us. You never leave us nor forsake us. God, we love you. Please minister to those of us who are broken in this midst of this test. And may we fix our eyes upon you as the author and perfecter of our faith and realize we can walk on water and realize what it means to truly be blessed when we live our life with you, Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.